right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Intro for Episode Fifty. I have James Lingren and or uh, Jason Lingren and James Alfred with me. Um, but I wanted to talk a minute about time because we intro in talking about the supposed ages. Um, you know, in the Western world, we're pretty much taught growing up that time is linear. Um, and I would ask, is this a logical thing to buy into? And for my part, I would suggest probably not. I mean, we can look at a day. Day follows night, night follows day, day follows night, over and over and again. We can blow that cycle of time open um, to the seasons. We can see that spring comes, then summer comes, and this goes on and on and on. We can look at supposed old maps where nearly each of them has a representation in maybe the Greek mythological flair uh, up in the corner, each of the four corners of the map representing these seasons. Um, Almost all the old maps have the path of the sun marked across the landmass. So again, is time a linear thing or a cyclical thing? I would suggest that what we can observe suggests that it's probably cyclical. So if we were to blow this time open to many thousands of years, would we expect to see some cyclical nature to that time? Now these are hard questions to know. Um, We don't have good teachers, most of us, um, to give us the inside line on these things. And really the only way to know for certain is to have an unbroken chain of information that goes back into time as far as it may go back. And I'm not sure if this is possible, although I have read there are Eastern adepts who held this information very closely. But let's look a little bit at the Zodiac. And I mentioned this in the opening of the episode because Jason started here. Uh, because of the myth that we're going to break down, uh, Prometheus, which is Lucifer, um, and other movies like 2001 always open up with eclipses, and they mark eclipses um, at a supposed changing of an age. If we're to look at the zodiac in the way we're told, we would go to the spring equinox and uh, look at what constellation is behind the sun. If we do that now, we would see that the sun is firmly in Pisces. I mean firmly in Pisces, not even really that close to Aquarius by most of the tools that I have used to look. And yet we're told we're heading into the age of Aquarius. If this is a true thing, most of the tools you use now, that's a heck of a ways off. I mean a heck of a ways off. But there's a problem here. We're told there's a thing called the precession of the equinoxes, where in the orbital model we've been handed, the world is spinning, but it wobbles like a top. The claim here is that although we are headed into the age of Aquarius, precession has knocked us back so that actually what we see in the sky doesn't correspond with the actual age we're going to be in. And is this an acceptable idea? For my part, no. If you can observe a thing like the sun in Pisces, I think it stands to reason that if ages are a real thing, we're in the age of Pisces. And if someone wants to come along and prove the procession of the equinoxes, how could that possibly be done uh, without a trustable history of some sort that goes back a long, long time? And I'm talking thousands of years Um, or or some other thing. I mean, we're told that the North Star Polaris, uh, because of the procession of the equinoxes at another previous time, thousands of years ago, some other star was was the North Star. Well, that implies a couple things that there's always a star that lines up as the North Star, which is a bit unbelievable, but it also implies that the distance in between it becoming the North Star is many, many years, thousands, hundreds, something like that, where there really is no North Star. These things seem a bridge too far for me. 
And the reason I bring it up is because what's in a story? You know, this episode, we break down basically myths and stories in movies. Um, if there is valid information in these stories and myths, um, then there must be a reason that we see the encoding of the sky so often. Um, is it possible that there are people in this world that understand what came before in a time? Or should we all be listening to Pink Floyd's Welcome to the Machine? These are hard things to know. But we can begin to logically deduce. We're on the first step of a new era in a way. Maybe not a new age, I don't know, but certainly a new era where things are getting challenged. People are taking the time to look for themselves and try to logically work out what in the heck is going on here. And so while I can't tell you the validity of ages, I can tell you people have spent a hell of a lot of time encoding it into movies, allegorizing it in myth and story. And when you see a thing that has had so much time expended on it, you kind of come to the logical conclusion that there must be some there there. But what is that there? Or again, should we all be listening to Welcome to the Machine? Um, these are, you know, choices that are far apart. But logically, I think we can understand that there is a reason that so much time is expended on watching the sky. And I've said this a lot of times. What is the sky for us? Regardless of the model you choose to accept, what the sky is is our clock. It is the only clock we have. The division of time down here on this world is basically the equinoxes and the solstices. And so when we see people expending so much energy to make histories of eclipses, of transits of planets, of these types of things, what we're looking at is the tracking of time. When we look at the dates from a culture like, say, Hebrew right now or the Jewish culture with a lunar calendar, I might add, which is far closer to some sensible division of our time down here. And I would point out that the word moon comes, you know, that's month, month. You know, that was the logical division back in the day, apparently. But we look at the Hebraic calendar, and it's, what, 5,777 or something like this? We look at the calendar we're using here in the West, and it's 2017. We could look at the Islamic calendar, and I didn't look it up. I've forgotten what it is. I, I knew a week or two ago, I guess, but I've forgotten. They're all different. So where are they marking time from? Seemingly, the Hebraic or Jewish calendar goes back the furthest on the face of it, 5,770-some years. Um, why? Why were they counting from these times? Why was our calendar jacked up so that we're much further into, you know, we're, we're not even, we're, we're barely to 2017 here, 2,000 years, compared to counting from 5,000 some, almost 6,000 years back. Why these discrepancies? And I would submit is because there's a reason to hide what the sky tells us, and there's likely people out there in the world who understand the cyclical nature of time. But again, there is also the possibility that this is one large construct, and I see no way to prove it one way or the other. The kind of matrixy idea where you're laying on a table somewhere and your conscience is creating this reality. And while that is probably a bridge too far, the point I would make is how do you logically prove that out one way or the other? Nearly impossible, unless I guess you're some adept yogi on a mountaintop somewhere deep in meditation that can peer through the veil. Other than that, I'm not sure what construct you develop to try to prove these things out. But I can tell you, there is a reason for all the encoding of information, the tracking of the sky, the importance of eclipses, solar and lunar both. Um, the reasons that we can see these calendars jacked up where one has almost started counting 6,000 years ago and the one we're using is barely 2,000 years ago. All these things have a meaning of some sort. 
But anyhow, we're going to break down the myth of Prometheus, which is basically the story of Lucifer. Um, and we're going to use a movie called Prometheus um, as our basis to do this because it's just another story. And again, it's got information held within it. Some of it obvious, some of it not. But anyhow, let's jump in with James and Jason. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 50. It's been about a year since I launched this podcast, and I have Jason Lindgren and James Alford back with me. Um, today, we're going to talk about a bit of so-called Greek myth and uh, the idea of Prometheus and the story of Lucifer basically being the same thing. Uh, there will be much more that we include. We're going to open up with thoughts on what the ages might be. And that's a pretty murky pool of water. I've gone at that time and time again for probably 15, 20 years or better, um, reading some of the oldest texts I can get my hand on, if in fact they are truly old. Um, but anyhow, let's jump right in. I'll kick it over to you. Oh, maybe, maybe I should say, um, how, are, how are you doing, James, on the back of the last show we did? Uh, did you get any feedback? Uh, a lot of, yeah, positive feedback, actually. Uh, a couple more hits on the actual article that discussed the fraudulent nature of ISIS and the, the deception and so forth and how a lot of those symbols were used in the uh, Rosetta Philae mission. Um, but, I mean, a lot of hits, got a couple of emails so forth, um, but uh, overall, very good uh, response. Cool, man. Uh, of course, YouTube had something to say about that last episode. Uh, they pulled the advertising, but I'll probably talk about that in the in the uh, intro into this episode. But anyhow, I'll kick it over to you, James. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so that that would be Jason, not James. No problem. <laughs> so we're gonna lead off this episode with "As Above, So Below." Uh, the way the ages are supposed to be presented to us, uh, it's that we rotate through the various zodiacal ages, lasting approximately 2,000 years each. Currently, we were supposed to be in the age of Pisces that was ushered in with the rise of Christianity. Previously, we had the age of Aries the Ram, and before that, Taurus the Bull, which is very likely why you see the predominant god in the age of Aries, which was Mithra, uh, frequently depicted as slaying a bull. Uh, the current age of the fishes can be seen as represented by the wearing of the Dagon fish hat by Catholic priests. And as uh, Crow had said while we were talking before the show, uh, none means fish. Could could be that none means fish in Hebrew. I have seen that claimed. This is a hell of a topic because I've gone at it time and time again as I was trying to decode the Zodiac and other things. Um, there came a point when I understood that the idea behind the ages is that at the spring equinox, you look at the position of the sun and the sign of the Zodiac that's behind the sun dictates the age. But wait a minute, not so easy. Um, first off, I've spent a lot of years reading some of the oldest texts I can get my hand on, and the claim being made is that the masters or the adepts that understood truly how long an age was never, ever let the information get out. It didn't even apparently go into the West, into things like the Masonic orders, if that's a correct thing. But the idea behind it was mouth to ear. In other words, it was never written down, and even initiates wouldn't be uh, – told until they were at a certain level and had proved themselves worthy and yada yada, you know? So the, one of the big things here is we see the fingerprints, like there are claims in the research that I've done previously that if you go to Spain and you see a bullfight, what you are seeing is a, a holdover from the idea of killing the bull, as Jason just uh, met, mentioned when they were slaughtering bulls in a toroborium and uh, letting all that filth fall on them as a type of baptism. Mm -hmm. um, the real issue here is if anyone opens up Stellarium 
uh, and you ratchet it forward to the spring equinox on any given year, if you check what, what day that's supposed to be, you will see that the sun is roughly between Pisces and Aquarius, probably maybe a little closer to Pisces last time I looked. Um, here's the problem, because what part of what's going on here is there are claims that this is tied to what's called the precession of the equinoxes, um, and I don't accept it. Um, the idea here is, is that the world is spinning like a top, and so I can make maybe a visual thing for people to think about. The idea of precession is like when a top starts to wobble. Um, if you looked at where the North Star currently Polaris, you know, in so many thousand years, it would be Vega or some other star. There's two problems here. First of all, I don't accept the orbital model. Uh, we got that from liars. Secondarily, how the hell do you ever prove that 10,000 years ago, the North Star was a different star? And the idea that there's always some North Star perfectly positioned, I find problems with that. And while we can see the fingerprints of the ages in exactly the way that Jason uh, described it here with the bull, the fish, the fish is heavily, heavily, heavily encoded into Christianity. Um, and even the idea of the psyop that was early rock and roll in the hippie eras with songs like, you know, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So I just wanted to get that in there. We talk about this a little bit, but in my view, if there is a there there, there are very few people who probably know the truth about this, and it was never written down as far as I can tell. Um, initiates that made a certain level and proved themselves out was mouth to ear, and they were told. And probably, if there is truth to this, my assumption at this point is that it's primarily held by the ancient Eastern adepts, uh, mostly in India. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. So, tying in with all that, we have, uh, in the ancient world, the, the god El, or Saturn, or Cronus, being replaced by Jupiter, Zeus, Dios. Uh, Zeus has been also tied to be not just Dios, but Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews. So, a lot of these things get interchanged, and who knows exactly what's accurate and what's not, but it seems that a lot of these things intertwined way back when, whenever way back when actually is. Well, of course, this plays into the supposed Greek myths where we have Kronos. I've, I've forgotten. I haven't looked at this in so long, but uh, he, I believe he castrates Zeus or Jupiter. Um, but again, you're exactly right. Um, Zeus is heavily tied um, to Christianity, even in so much as um, the encoding of the word Jupiter. Um, and I, I, I've pointed this out from the Devil's Pulpit before, where way back in the 1800s, people who had the top Masonic texts were claiming that the encoding was the Jew Peter. Um, and they make a good case for it. Matter of fact, they make a damn strong case for it. Um, I've forgotten all the points around it. But James, do you have anything to add to this? Uh, other than just looking into the Greek stuff, uh, we had talked a little bit about it, and um, when you look at Zeus, it's interesting. It's As you had mentioned, you've got the beginning with Kronos, with Saturn, and uh, some of the research I've been doing with some older books as well. Um, Saturn is typically associated with like the limitation of form and so forth. And uh, I found this timeline, and I was actually going to ask you both about this. I, I'm not exactly sure and haven't had the time to research it, but you start getting into the idea of Saturn, uh, being day one of the great uh, of the great timeline, and then you've got these ideas like a period of the sun, the moon, Mars half, Earth period, etc., etc., etc. And I don't know if this is a Blavatsky stuff. I'm not 100% familiar with her work, but you start looking at an idea of Saturn being the beginning of creation, Saturn basically imposing time, and then um, the idea that eventually Jupiter or Zeus will reign, and you have this kind of new-agey idea of life triumphs over time. 
uh, in the long run. Any uh, thoughts on that? I, I guess I'm not yeah. 100% on that. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, Zeus got castrated, if I remember correctly, so I don't know how he comes back from that. Although, um, you know, in our last episode with Osiris, he lost his phallus and they still moved on. Um, but but anyhow, um, the I'll, I'll address the Blavatsky thing. Um, there was a time when I was looking at the Crowley thing and I figured, well, I got to read some of this. And some of it is just, I mean, it's like calculus going through this stuff. It's unreal uh, what's written down there to think that someone actually memorized all this, these tables and this math and these other things to take apart words and language. But um, I kept finding all these places where Blavatsky was getting bad mouthed. And I found it while I was studying Tibetan Buddhism. So I said, well, okay, I'll take a look at her. There was another person named Patricia Neal who was supposedly the first white female into, uh, I don't remember if it was the capital of Tibet at the time or what it was, but apparently the claim was that she made it in and got trained up um, as if she was a man for whatever that's worth. But to get back to Blavatsky, um, as I began to look into Blavatsky, my main problem became is that she is elite. She is a lord, basically, a female lord, um, one of these people who could travel endlessly around the world, never have to work. She came from a patrician family. Um, and I began to take that apart in the same way. Like, as an example, when you don't have enough information, you try to build constructs in your mind that let you make a decision one way or the other. And I did this with Blavatsky. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an allegory. Uh, recently, there was an auto accident in our family, and uh, I didn't dig what the insurance company was doing, but I was too confused by all the crap they were putting in front of me. So I finally boiled it down to what I do know, and I said to myself, who does a corporation serve? And the reason I did this is because both parties in the accident had the same insurance company. And I was trying to deduce whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. And when I boiled it down to who does a corporation serve, of course, the answer becomes the board of directors and the shareholders. They're not serving their customers. In the same way, I did that to Blavatsky. And I couldn't for the life of me reconcile that this patrician was somehow writing these books for the you know huddled masses to benefit sure. from. And so that's where I left it. But there was a lot of interesting claims in Blavatsky's stuff. But again, I mean, was she even a real person? I don't know. Right. But anyhow, um, got anything to add to that? Uh, I do. It was Uranus that was castrated. Uranus ah. and Guy are supposed to have... Uh, been been the uh, progenitors of the 12 titans one of which is prometheus which we're going to get into momentarily and um the when, when the 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 phallus and, and the blood hit hit the uh, the earth other things are supposed to have sprung from it so it was basically uranus um and saturn is one of the one one of the titans and saturn it was prophesied to saturn that uh, one of his children would depose him which would be zeus so it, you, you can see the, the whole hierarchy here Okay, so I had it backwards, I guess. Um, it's been a long time since I've looked at these things. But anyhow, go ahead and push in. I mean, it, shortly here, we're going to begin to draw the line between the idea of Prometheus and the idea of Lucifer. Right. Um, so let's do it. So on the character Prometheus, as I just said, one, he's one of the titans. Uh, in the Greek legends, he is supposed to have created man out of, out of mud. And I believe it was Athena breathed life into the mud. And we have man, not woman, just man. Uh, mm -hmm. His name derives from the Greek word meaning forethought. In the battle to overthrow the old gods, which would be Cronus Saturn being one of them, Prometheus sided with instead with the victor, who was Zeus. So this would coincide with the changing of the ages from El Saturn to Jupiter Zeus. 
And there's no getting away from that there are 12 Titans. Anytime you see 12 apostles, 12 Titans, 12 anything in these contexts, there is an allegory going on here for the Zodiac. Um, and this is not hogwash or New Age nonsense. It's basically pointing out the importance of the zodiacal signs or the zodiacal signs. Um, that's how we position the sun. It's how we mark time. Um, James? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, just even on this idea here, you've got, uh, you know, a lesser being creating humankind, right? I mean, you've got the idea that there's some sort of a prime deity or some sort of uh, source. And when you get into the idea of Prometheus and his brother um, Epimetheus, these are the things that were, these were the two titans or these were the two gods that were tasked to create life. So it's almost, from from whatever it is, whatever the Greek myths are, you've got this idea of got a, a disinterested group of prime deities and they really have no interest in in us right so it's kind of building this this prometheus this luciferian character that we're going to see revisited over and over and over that's right and and one thing that we got to point out here is you know in these greek myths where most of this stuff is rooted um these guys are petty man um they're they're jealous they're pissed off they do things because of egotistical reasons and in the story you're about to hear here basically what it comes down to is prometheus is a guy who ends up loving us and everyone else not so much for the most part um so you see this kind of uh, you know flippant way that people are handled from the start in these myths, where it's not that there was these supposed gods and they cared about us, it was in some ways the exact opposite, that some of the gods didn't care for us at all, but there was one hero, as they're often called, who was going to stick up for us. But anyhow, James, go ahead and, and let's jump into Prometheus. Yeah, did, uh, Jason, did you want to run with your uh, outline here? Sorry, I keep saying James. That's okay. <laughs> We, we got to change the J's from one of the words. I'm sitting here <laughs> yeah. looking at the monitor, getting yeah. confused. Go, go ahead, Jason. So, on the creation of man by Prometheus, uh, we have Prometheus and Epimetheus, two of the Titans, who were spared imprisonment in Tartarus after the Titan Amici, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, that was the war between the Titans and the Olympians, because they had not fought alongside the other Titans. Instead, they were given the task of creating man. Prometheus shaped man out of mud, and Athena breathed life into his clay figure. Prometheus assigned Epimetheus with the task of giving the creatures of the earth their various qualities, such as swiftness, cunning, strength, fur, and wings. Unfortunately, by the time he got to man, Epimetheus had given all the good qualities out, and there were none left for man. So, Prometheus decided to make man stand upright, just like the gods did, and to give them fire. Prometheus loved man more than the Olympians, who had banished most of his family to Tartarus, which is the underworld. So when Zeus decreed that man must sacrifice a portion of each food to the gods, Prometheus decided to trick Zeus. And this is, this is where you start seeing the, the notion of a trickster as well being woven into this uh, figure. He created two piles, one with bones wrapped in juicy fat, and another with the finest meat hidden inside a hide. He then asked Zeus to choose one of the piles. Zeus, being unaware of what was being done here, chose the bones, and since he had given his word, was forced to accept the bones as his share for future sacrifices. In his anger over the trick, he took fire away from man. However, Prometheus lit a torch from the sun and brought it back again to man. Zeus was enraged that man again had fire. He decided to inflict a terrible punishment on both man and Prometheus. To punish man, Zeus had Hephaestus create a mortal of stunning beauty. The gods gave the mortal many gifts of wealth. He then had Hermes give the mortal a deceptive heart and a lying tongue. 
this creation was Pandora, the first woman. A final gift was a jar which Pandora was forbidden to open. Sometimes it's also said to be a box. Thus, Zeus sent Pandora to Epimetheus, who had decided to live amongst men. Prometheus had warned Ep Epimetheus not to accept gifts from Zeus, but Pandora's beauty was too great, so he let her stay with him. Eventually, Pandora's curiosity about the forbidden jar overwhelmed her. She opened it, releasing all the evils upon the earth. Only one thing was left in the jar when Pandora finally managed to close the lid again, and that was hope. Zeus was angry at Prometheus for three things— being tricked on sacrifices, stealing fire for man, and for re another one that's uh, not quite explained, refusing to tell Zeus which of Zeus's children would dethrone him. Zeus commanded his servants, force and violence, to seize Prometheus, take him to the Caucasus Mountains, and chain him to a rock with unbreakable diamond chains. There he was tormented day and night by a giant eagle tearing at his liver. Zeus gave Prometheus two ways out of this torment. He could tell Zeus who the mother of the child that would dethrone him was, or meet two conditions. First, that an immortal must volunteer to die for Prometheus, and second, that a mortal must kill the eagle and unchain him. Eventually, Chiron the centaur agreed to die for him, and Heracles killed the eagle and unbound him. So there's so much going on here. Um, Heracles is, of course, Hercules. Uh, most people... Are, are familiar with, but um, you know, in the in the last part of that telling, uh, you're seeing another reference to the ages because Zeus somehow knows that in the future one of his children, Saturn, is going to dethrone him, um, or Kronos. I think I have that right, Jason, don't I? No, Saturn's the father. Uh, his children would would be. Um... Yeah, I forgot which one it was. It gets so kind of convoluted, but I'll back up a little bit um, since I'm screwing that up. Um, one of the things in the description is when they're getting ready to, to make people or, or humans, um, they run out of all the things they need, but fur was one of the things that people were going to get, and they were going to go on four legs. So it's almost like they're telling you the intention that the making of human beings was going to be much more animalistic um, than it ended up being because of um, Prometheus. Um, anyhow, I could go on and on about this. James, do you have something to add about this yeah, intro exactly. story? It, well, again, it just, you know, again, you're looking at some sort of a deity that's a lesser deity, I should say, in the case of Prometheus and his brother that are giving more powers and, and special uh, creation to the idea of animals. Again, mankind is at the bottom of, of that list of uh, creation. Uh, one other thing, too, about it, which I thought was interesting, in one of the older books I've got, I've read about the idea that Prometheus, when he first flew to the sun to steal uh, fire in his chariot, uh, at that point in time, he also learned a secret uh, that was the remedy to old age. And I think that is interesting in that um, <clears throat> we'll see that when we start to get into the film, you have the idea that even the deities— um, aren't even uh, immortal, I should say. So when you get to the idea of Prometheus being bound on a rock on the mountain, um, you know, question is, why didn't Zeus just slay him? Well, if you believe one aspect of this myth, it's the idea that Zeus and the other gods are not immortal, and that when Prometheus learned this secret to old age and the secret to immortality, um, they were not able to kill him because that secret would disappear with uh, Prometheus. So a little bit of a side note and, and something that I think comes into play when we start to break down the uh, the film. Well, this is an interesting point, um, and it does relate to the modern age in some ways, um, because and when I was heavily filming chemtrails and kind of researching around it and looking at things like sun gazing because I knew that massive amounts of sunlight were being blocked, 
Um, I came to an account in old Indian texts that the word healing has its root in the word helios, with the idea being that all healing came from the sun, which again echoes what we're talking about here. But um, it's kind of an interesting thing to see because there are um, meditation masters living in India who apparently gone under clinical conditions and claim that they haven't drank water or eaten food in years and years. And when they were clinically put into a room for something like 60 or 90 days, I've forgotten. It's been years since I looked at this, um, that it was confirmed. And when they asked the guy, how were you doing this? They asked him how old he was. He didn't know if I remember correctly and how he was doing. And he said, well, I look at the sun. The sun gives me all the power and healing I need. Um, these are interesting ideas, but of course, you know, in the time we find ourselves, we've got to test them and find out if there's a there there. But I think it is very interesting. Um, and, and you know what? I should back up a little in state. When you go to look at the story of Prometheus, there are versions, man. There's like three or four popular versions, um, mm -hmm. and this will run into the Lucifer story. But anyhow, I'll quit rambling. Do you have anything more to add, James? Uh, no, I think, uh, you know, as far as the, the Prometheus myth, I think we've got that fairly uh, uh, defined as we move forward here. Yeah, even even the differing versions all kind of relate pretty closely. But anyhow, go go ahead. We'll uh, we'll start to relate Lucifer into this, Jason. Now, Zeus was never actually deposed. Christianity is is the only thing that's said to have like replaced Zeus, but there was no actual like storyline in in the actual Greek mythos where you know another god or whatever came along and took him out. So, but he was in fear of it. So it looks like the the stories that they were inventing whenever this actually took place just seemed like they faded away, which I actually find interesting. I don't know if you've seen the remake of Clash of the Titans and its sequel, Wrath of the Titans. Uh, in the sequel, the gods actually are fighting against Saturn trying to come back and use all their power up and fade away. So I thought that, I, I thought that was interesting. I watched that not too long ago, just a few months ago. Yeah, I haven't seen either of those two movies. Um, I just I have a hard time getting through modern movies on that level, um, so I, I basically avoid them. I guess I watch them for exactly why why we like what we're talking about here. You know, just like what what are they trying to tell us for real, not just uh, you know, is it a good story kind of thing. You know. Mm -hmm. Well, clear, clear, clearly it's all encoded. There's no no getting away from it. Yeah, absolutely. And I do get very curious what they're trying to say to us and uh, stay on top of it as best as I can. Just as like we're going to get to with the movie. Prometheus. It's man, that thing is just littered with it. But so we're yes. we're moving on to the concept of Lucifer, and a lot of folks are going to be very familiar with the, the, some of this information. It's it's, it's very easily uh, accessible. It's all all over the place. It literally translates from Latin to mean the day star or morning star. It was the, a description of the planet Venus. Let's stop there for a second and make a point so people understand. Um, for those who watch the sky, sometimes Venus, which is usually the brightest thing in the sky if there's not a full moon, um, will be the evening star or the morning star. And the reason we're given for this is because it's inside our orbit of the sun, which I don't accept, by the way, because I don't accept the orbital model. The point being is that it does not arc over the top of the sky like every other planet, which is said to be outside our orbit of the sun. So just to give that you know, definition of why is it the day star or the morning star, because we're talking about Venus and Venus is both depending where it is in its cycle. Anyhow, sorry, Jason. Right. So sight of the planet in the pre-dawn sky signifies the rising of the sun. So breaking the, the word Lucifer down, we have Lux or Lucy, L-U-C-I, meaning light and fair, F-E-R or fairy, F-E-R-R-E, -R -R -E, is to carry. Therefore, Lucifer is called the light bearer or light bringer. 
Right. So, I mean, you're looking again at the encoding of what we can observe in the sky um, when it is the morning star. Uh, I mean, it's you can't miss it. So many people have contacted me. As a matter of fact, um, it gets confused to be a UFO all the time because it is it's like got this diamond very diamond quality light, very white and pure light. Uh, there's no mistaking it for anything else in the sky once you get used to looking at the sky. In other words, if, say, something bright like Jupiter happened to be up, there would be no confusing the two. Um, you would instantly know. So the idea here is is that when you see that morning star, you know the sun's right behind it. And um, any astronomer worth his salt will have had a telescope on Venus trying to shoot it, which I've done many times, as the sun is coming up. Um, and in some cases, you can see it for quite a while um, if you're locked on it as the sun comes up. Anyhow, uh, James? Uh, yeah, and just in regard to Lucifer, I mean, again, there's this tie that Prometheus, the, um, I think there's a, I can't remember, it's like phosphorus and uh, there's an old terminology for both the morning and the uh, evening star. I'm trying to blank on it, but uh, I guess in respect to the Lucifer, once we get through the Lucifer, I'd like to more or less drag in the idea of Vulcan, um, he too was another god that fell from heaven, um, and at that point in time, he was a god of fire. But you start to, at this point in time, bring in the idea of blacksmith and metalworking and being a builder and so forth. So you're starting to get this uh, this tie-in, right? That's leading into this Masonic uh, mythology and these Masonic memes that you see everywhere. But um, we can get to that bit. Right, and we're about to jump into the King James version of the Bible. Um, a Bible with the name of a king on it, but of course, there's no getting away from Tubal Cain uh, in the biblical account, where you know it's exactly what James is talking about. Um, the Masonic orders make such a big deal out of this guy invented everything that matters, basically, um, or his descendants in one way, shape, or form. The stories that are told, you know, you've got your metalworking, your arts, your music. There's just a whole litany of things that make these more valuable personages um storyline um, but anyhow I'll, I'll let i'll let jason jump into the the kjv now crow as far as the planet venus and your telescope work is that something that uh, you can get really good images of and you can definitely see it for what it's supposed to be well i'll tell you what man venus is not duck um of all the things you shoot up there it was i think the first time i ever looked through a big scope a friend of mine had an astronomy class at one of the local community colleges, and their teacher took them up to the mountains in San Diego, and I think we were looking through, I don't know, a 15 or a 16-inch scope, and it was the first time I ever really had a good look at anything, and Venus is phased. And at first, you're like, wow, it looks like the moon, and Venus does phase. That's the first thing that is odd about Venus. So first off, you have a planet that is like Mercury. Mercury never comes very high off the horizon um, for the same stated reason that it's inside our orbit and very close to the sun with a period of 88 days or something like this. Um, 88 keys on a piano, by the way. There's some crossover there, but I've forgotten. Anyhow, these odd things about Venus when you compare it to the other so-called planets. But when you're watching Venus, um, the size of it changes drastically. Sometimes it's not very big. It'll be phased. Other times it's much bigger, seeming much closer. And it is piercing white, pure diamond quality light. Um, and it's just strange to see a, a planet described as such phase like that, exactly like the moon. So that, that's about all I can add there. Interesting. Okay, so the only mention of Lucifer in the King James uh, version of the Bible is it's actually most likely in regards to an extremely arrogant Babylonian king who regarded himself most highly. And it's in Isaiah 12 through 14. 
How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the naked nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. So it's kind of a strange thing because in books like the Devil Pulpit, but Devil's Pulpit, where he's breaking down the Masonic language encoded in scripture like this, um, it's basically about what's going on. You know, in some cases, there's plenty of examples in that book where they're coming into the harvest and the virgin, Virgo the virgin, is rising. And of course, Virgo the virgin is holding a stalk of corn. And you'll see different versions in the modern era. Sometimes it's wheat, but traditionally, I think it was a stalk of corn in her hand. It almost sounds to me like that's what's going on here because. It's kind of a weird thing to see that he's going to rise high above the clouds into the heavens because truth is, is that most of the time Venus never really gets that high in the sky, not to apex anyhow, like, you know, you might watch uh, one of the other planets that is supposedly outside of our orbit go all the way over the top of your head. So I think that's being referenced here. And it must be that when they're talking about being cut down and falling, you're talking about the setting of Saturn. Um, So it's an interesting thing, but I would have to take a lot of time to really kind of correlate it, look at astronomical data on it and break it down. So you got anything on this, James? Uh, not so much, you know. I, I personally, I find it interesting that Lucifer is sort of this uh, benevolent character until you get into the idea of the middle, uh, what 1600s. Um, you know, Jason's mentioning he's going to get into the idea of like Paradise Lost and the Divine Comedy and so forth. So it's um, you do wonder. Uh, it's hard for me to explain. It's almost like you've got this benevolent uh, bringer of wisdom, bringer of illumination. Um, it's it's tied to this very cosmic idea that, again, the uh, source gods or the source deities really don't care for humanity, but they have no interest in us. And you've got this uh, champion that's um, flying through the sky and bringing the sun and so forth. Um, it's just very, uh, it's hard for me to explain. It's like very primordial. It's like very uh, archetypal in terms of <clears throat> how this is all constructed into myths and how this stuff manifests in all these various legends and stories from past. I, I know exactly what you're getting at here. Um, it, it, it almost seems to me like he was exactly not just benevolent in a in a distant past somewhere, is that he was a, a bit of a hero. It appears that what happened is the people who controlled the narrative began to equate him with something bad. Like the average person today, if you asked what is Lucifer, they would say, oh, he's the devil. Oh, he's Satan. Um, but there is a whole other aspect here, as you mentioned, where um, the elites, the mystery schools, they don't view it that way. They view him as a hero. And even in the myths um, that we can read that are encoded, like the Prometheus myths, um, he's standing up for people, you know. But in the Bible, of course, there's the whole fallen angel, the devil, the Satan, and all these other things that have led people to demonize the idea that is being expressed here. So it's really hard to completely understand what's going on, which is why we're trying to break this down, because clearly there are two classes of people here. There are the average run of people, the 90-some percent, who are familiar with the biblical accounts and would equate Lucifer with bad things. Then there are the elite who do the exact opposite and seem to treat him as a hero, a champion of mankind. Anyhow, um, Jason? Yeah, it's interesting, and I don't know at what point in the long ago past that these things started getting interchanged, but it seems that uh, the elite, uh, it's even in the Freemason uh, beliefs from what I understand, that once you reach the 30th degree, you find out you've been 
swearing blood oaths to Lucifer because Lucifer is the the illuminator. You know, you're getting your knowledge from him. So at some point, uh, assumedly a long time ago, these things started getting intertwined. And I've, I haven't been able to figure out exactly when and where this all happened. But at some point, that is what they accept. And, and supposedly people who are in the higher ranks of the of Freemasonry have some people have spilled the beans and said, hey, this is this is what these guys actually think. And I'm not OK with it. Well, it's a it's a funny, funny thing, because um, it's almost like the people in the know thought they had something of value. So what they were going to do is lead everyone off the scent of it. Um, But it's a hard thing to know. Um, And again, if it ends up being one of these things that is mouth to ear, um, you're probably not going to find it written a lot of place. But exactly what you mentioned is exactly what I found were people um, who have broken ranks, supposedly, and other sources, and people who are in Eastern traditions who claim that the Freemasons have a watered-down version of things that matter, they say the same thing, um, that uh, Lucifer is incredibly important to them, and they do treat him as if he was, in fact, the light bringer and the hero of humanity. But anyhow. And also, we don't have the concept of Lucifer as being Satan or the devil, until far, far later, which is which is what you know a, a, we all find when you go looking for this information. Lucifer isn't really much of anything in, in the as far as the Old Testament kind of eras. It's it's not until far, far later, once Christianity is uh, in the more modernized Western concept, that you start getting these uh, crisscrossing. Well, there's there's no getting away from it. You're talking about the Old Testament. They were encoding the sky. It's what they were doing. Um, and apparently, you know, I've I've heard accounts where uh, the Zodiac cannot be interchanged with the Jewish temple, um, that these things don't happen. Um, but nonetheless, you can see that all the Old Testament encoding does directly relate to the sky. There are plenty of books out there that demonstrate it. And again, not to you know bag so hard on the devil's pulpit, you're looking at a guy who's holding one of the top two Masonic texts, and uh, he's got a divinity degree from the Vatican. He starts to put all this together. But what I will do this summer— is there is a cathedral, or what I call a cathedral, St. George's in Newport, Rhode Island, which I can drive to. Um, when I was on my road trip, I went in there with my nephew. We kind of had to sneak in. Um, I'm still not sure if you get can get permission to go in and film, but um, on the aisle going down to the altar, there's all this elaborate black and white tile work, hmm. and there's the zodiac encoded right before you get to the altar. You've got to go up to like the second or third level. Someone's got to have a flashlight and you got to have a telephoto lens, which we did. Um, and we filmed this. I'll try to film it again to put it out there to demonstrate um, what the heck, man, you've been told the exact opposite of what's going on. And so many people will roll their eyes and say, you don't know anything about Christianity. You don't know anything about Catholicism. They'll get upset because it's challenging their belief systems. Nonetheless, I will produce again, footage this summer um, of the Zodiac completely tiled into the aisle going up to the uh, the Holy of Holies in, in a Catholic church uh, that's built a lot like a cathedral. I'll shoot the outside of it, too. You can look it up online, St. George's. I think it might even—I don't know if it's called a cathedral, but it looks like one. Um, it's an incredible, incredible place. But there it is in your face, man. Um, this was built, if I remember correctly— I'm going to try to say the 1800s. I hope I don't have this wrong. Um, it's been over a year since I was there, um, and we were beat up from having driven thousands of miles all over the place. But there it is, man. It's tiled right into the floor, the Zodiac. Um, and that has meaning. Um, and not only that, I'll try to do a better job of getting a brighter flashlight 
um, because we had a problem with being high enough to shoot it. Um, but it will matter. The orientation of the Zodiac will matter because what's pointing towards the altar will probably have a significance. And before I kick it back over to you, Jason, I want to mention um, – the, the YouTube channel that I've mentioned before, Rethinking It All, I think it's Rethinking It All. Maybe I better check real quick. Um, just, yeah, Rethinking the Universe, yeah. Re Rethinking uh, the Universe, I believe, is the name of that one. Oh, hold on. Let me let me pull it up real quick. Um, he just put up a Disney um, a Disney clip from the 50s, which everyone should go look at it. It's Rethinking It All um, is know. actually the channel. Hold on. Let me get over to his videos and make sure this is the right one. Oh, no, no. Sorry, that's the wrong channel. Shoot. I'm going to have to search. Is it Zoop Zook? Give me just a second here. Shoot. <laughs> I'm remembering the wrong things. While, while these guys are talking, I'll go back through my sub list and I'll find the person who put up the Disney. Um, I don't know. It's like an hour or two hour show where they're showing the Zodiac and they're talking about the ages, but it's all encoded. They've got the Zodiac spinning the wrong way from our point of view counterclockwise, which in my view is likely a way to demonstrate to people in the know that this is all nonsense what we're pushing out. But it's a good look at how the animal farm idea of changing history is done. Go back, and in a minute I'll tell you the channel, um, go back and look at this Disney um, show that was aired in the 50s and look at what they're pushing then and look where we are now and it's a good snapshot but anyhow i'll kick it back over to you jason while i try to figure out which channel this was all right so we have dante's divine comedy which came out in 1320 originally and then milton's paradise lost which originally came out in 1667 this is where we get the personification of satan as this terrible beast with bat wings and a horrible countenance and just being uh, just scary to behold uh, which is, of course, a far cry from Lucifer being uh, a beautiful, illuminated being. And this is the, where the, the notion of Lucifer was Satan before being cast out of heaven, and Satan is what he is now called after the fall, and he is in hell. Now, in Genesis, it says only a serpent comes to Eve to tempt her to eat from the tree of knowledge uh, with Adam. There's no mention of Lucifer, Satan, or a devil of any kind. It only says the serpent, so... The concept of a devil doesn't seem to even be in there yet. Mm -hmm. And that's a very Gnostic sensibility when you start reading of groups like the uh, the Ophites and so forth. The idea that the the snake in the Garden of even again is the hero. You know, it's not the snake isn't a bad thing. It's something that's coming in to humanity. It's imparting enlightenment, illumination through this through the form of this apple. And again, it's the deities have zero interest. They want to keep humanity more or less enslaved in uh, ignorance and, um, you know, be part of the uh, the profane, for lack of a better word. So um, just a, a side note, you see a little bit of Gnostic sensibility when you start looking at the idea of the snake in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, and then also the fact that, again, it's being tied to the, the, the concept of illumination, that the serpent is offering illumination and knowledge, you know, that's... Mm -hmm. That's a very early concept that I, I I can kind of see how these things all intertwine. I'm just not sure at what point how they all got lopped into this one concept of the devil, you know? Yeah, exactly. And another side note, too, with the, the idea of Vulcan, when you mentioned how the uh, hideousness is mentioned in these ideas of Satan that you begin to see in the um, 16, 17 hundreds, uh, Vulcan, too, was a, considered to be a, an abnormality. So the, the background on that, Vulcan is a hero or a god of fire, a fire of, of light. He fell from the heavenly face as well. Um, 
And now there's some dispute as to what caused that fall. There's this idea that he was possibly defending uh, Zeus's wife from Zeus, or that he actually had a abnormality and a deformat- deformity, and that is why he was cast from heaven. Um, so if you start looking into this idea of this fire god and how it's possibly related to Satan, here you see the idea of the hideousness um, that was either caused by the fall or it was something that was imperfect upon his creation. Again, he is the um, a hero to humanity. So, you know, that's an interesting idea because of the old idea of, of uh sacrificing you know it always had to be the perfect bull there couldn't be a blemish um that's how a sacrifice was done so here you're pointing out that this i don't know what you call him maybe it's not a real demigod i know hercules is a demigod i'm not sure how we refer to lucifer but less than the top gods um if he was deformed in some way um it's really kind of a telling thing so their outcast their lesser thing was the only person you know the only being that cared about lowly humanity which was originally going to walk on four legs and have fur for crying out loud but anyhow i seem to have been unsubscribed from the channel but i did find it the name of the movie is disney's 1957 mars and beyond people should go look at that um and you can kind of see how the narrative changing and one thing i will point out i've mentioned this before i've done clips on it in this movie they are showing mars um with the canals in uh, the mapping and the other things. And this is something that's been completely defamed and scrubbed from history. Percival Lowell was one of the big purveyors of this idea using the telescope that I've actually looked through in Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, he spent a lot of time supposedly charting the canals. Um, there is a 1960s layover for Google Mars that shows the canals. Uh, as late as the 60s, the Air Force was still using, um, I think in, in the Mariner Viking landings uh, was the reason for the mapping making of those maps. But in the modern age, there ain't no look like you're going to see in this movie on Mars. And that was the way it was portrayed back in the day. And this is just one of many things. Anyhow, sorry to pull us off topic here, guys. Well, next up, we're getting into the the actual movie Prometheus. But uh, James, you wanted to go in some, into some background on the Ridley Scott films so with Gnostic sensibility. So why don't you go ahead and do that? Uh, just at a very high level, and I'm sure a lot of the people that are listening are familiar with these ideas. You know, you've got the idea of uh, Blade Runner, the famous Harrison Ford film from the based off the Philip K. Dick uh, short story. You know, you have these ideas of like a demiurge. You've got the idea of, of another character who creates these uh, replicants, these androids. It's a theme that you see repeated in Westworld, too, right? You've got the, the main character who, again, doesn't have any sympathy for his creation. Um, and you have like the the lesser uh, engineer, the lesser grand architect of the universe, for lack of a better word, that is inserting consciousness into these androids in Westworld. And then you also have the character in the uh, film Blade Runner, who's uh, the toy maker. He's basically imparting uh, the gift of consciousness again into these replicants. Uh, a lot of stuff has been written about it. I mean, I'm not going to have, I don't have to rehash it. I'm sh- again, I'm sure most people are familiar with it. But that was a key part of. Uh, Blade Runner. I don't know. Either of you have any ideas on that film? It's it's pretty powerful. I think even <clears throat> to this day, I think it stands the test of time. Blade Runner is a really good movie, and they're also putting out a sequel very soon. Yeah, it's it's probably one of the best sci-fi movies ever made. Um, you know, it's an interesting little trivia here, if I remember correctly. Uh, it went up for a Academy Award for costumes, and it was beat out by Gandhi, of all things. So you look at this kind of grand production of Blade Runner, and then people in, you know, basically... <laughs> Blankets and 
sandals beat him out for costumes. But I think it's also interesting um, that Ridley Scott was involved in The Martian. I've covered this before. Um, even the release date of The Martian was echoing uh, the programming idea that we were going to Mars. I believe it was a Monday and I hope I don't have this backwards again, it's been a couple of years, that they announced that Mars likely had water. And then, of course, that Friday, The Martian came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've talked before about all the encoding all the way through. But anyhow, James, were you done done going through that? Uh, yeah, just and real briefly, I just wanted to hit on aliens, since this is um, the idea of the alien, the sci-fi film from the 70s. Again, we'll be um, talking a little bit more about that when we get into the Prometheus myth. But uh, returning to the talk that we had last uh, week, you, you take the idea of directed panspermia. And so, again, it's very sexual. It's, it's got uh, phallus symbolism. It's got womb symbolism, seed symbolism. And if you return to that original film, Alien, and I remember this from, I think it was from school that I had learned about it. But at the very beginning, you see a very phallic type uh, situation. You kind of have like this uh, planet that's innocent. It's it's virgin, and this capsule or the spacecraft is kind of arching over the atmosphere, and it extends almost into kind of a phallus-looking uh, symbol. Uh, then, of course, when you have the uh, astronauts land on this planet, they go into the spaceship. The spaceship looks like a womb, like basically a, a woman who's got her legs spread apart. You have the seeds of humanity, these humans that are going into the womb. Um, and then, of course, you have the alien that um, gives birth, that latches onto the astronaut's face, and we all know how that turns out Um down the road in the movies, but very, very highly uh, sexual imagery, lots of uh, cosmic principles, the the feminine, the masculine, and all of that is basically laid out in front of everybody in the very first, I think, five minutes of the film Alien. So something just to set a background for as we move forward. And there's a direct relationship to the movie Prometheus and Alien. If I'm not mistaken, the sequel for Prometheus is actually one in the Alien um run, uh, if that's correct. I think it's alien. I've forgotten. My, my nephew's always telling me about these things, but there is a direct relationship. Mm-hmm. So th- that's all I really have on really Scott. I think, you know, down the road, I'd, he's, he seems like he's one of these interesting guys. He puts these films out and then he'll have a couple of duds and he'll do gladiator win I think a couple of Oscars for that and then do a couple duds, but he seems to be entrenched in the uh, military industrial complex now with uh, JPL and NAS and so forth. So yeah, what the next film will entail and what message will be attached to it, um, I think all of us are curious to see. Yeah, I think uh, if I remember not too, too long before uh, I was getting out of San Diego, maybe it was a year or two, I don't remember, uh, didn't he have a brother that committed suicide by jumping off a bridge in Hollywood or something like that? Um, anyhow, back over to you, Jason. Uh, James, before we finish up there, you had uh, on your notes the Orpheus Mystery School. What What's that about? Um, that was just a, a, another idea related to the idea of Prometheus. Again, this is all very, um, you know, as Crow had mentioned, mouth to ear. You know, you can't get a lot of information regarding these mystery schools. But Orpheus seems to have a, a bit of some sort of um, embodiment or maybe an origin uh, mystery cult doctrine. It's hard to figure out. Again, there's not a whole lot written, but I just wanted to make mention that um, when you look into his origins of the universe, the Titans, the Orpheus is considered to be he who heals by light. Again, the concept of illumination versus darkness and building over darkness. Uh, Just wanted to throw that out there. It was another one that tied into the origin of, of Prometheus, so not a whole lot to expound upon there. Cool. All right, so we're actually getting into the movie itself now. Uh, the pre-credits include something called Dune Entertainment, as you pointed out. 
Yeah, well, Crow's got plenty to say about that. We've talked about that in the past. Dune is yeah, an interesting I, I, intro. There, there's there's no getting away from it. It has to be related to um, to Herbert's uh, series of books. And, uh, you know, I, I urge everyone um, to read at least the books that were written by Frank Herbert Sr., not his son, whose name I've forgotten. Um, it's a very thinly veiled allegory for the existence that we are all in now. Um, it shows the inner workings of power, um, so-called royalty on different levels, and it totally um, begins to expose the idea of a Catholic church with things like the Orange Bible, of all things. And of course, orange is the only color that encodes to 33 by a standard uh, numerology breakdown. But anyhow, I don't want to get too far down that road. It is actually just one of the uh, the production credits going into the movie. Go ahead, Jason. Well, we, we open up with eclipse symbolism, which is uh, very similar actually to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Uh, that's used a couple times in the movie. In the intro, we see that there's no man upon the earth as the, the cameras are panning over this beautiful landscape. It's pure and nature, very beautiful and all that. And then we come upon in what uh, you could describe as an Anunnaki-like alien, or you could say the Elohim, let us make man in our image. This kind of concept is being shown to us. Of course, he's wearing a black robe, black robe of Saturn. He sacrifices himself after consuming some sort of nano-bio device that rips apart his DNA. And this is the black goo that we see later on throughout the whole movie. He starts basically disintegrating. He collapses into the waters, and his DNA rips apart and spreads out, and then you see everything recombining, and that is supposed to be how life was created on the Earth, according to the movie's mythology. So let's take that apart for a minute. I believe that he's referred to as the engineer. Mm-hmm. Again, echoing kind of a Masonic idea, the builder. Um, but you, you mentioned that we open up with the eclipses. Now, 2001, there are a couple of eclipses. This is the idea of ages again being encoded. Uh, in the movie 2001, we open with an eclipse, and there's like monkeys or maybe not even any animals, I've forgotten. But the first thing that we see is monkeys. And then by the time we get to the second eclipse, you know, you're up to human beings and space travel and all this other stuff. There's a similar thing going on in Prometheus, uh, almost verbatim. They're pointing out a time when there was basically just plant life here, no animals, no people. Um, and then we have the eclipse symbolism. And then, of course, we're watching the so-called engineers in their very religious-looking black Saturnian robes uh, beginning life. But I just wanted to get that in there, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's the same, same concepts as we see repeated by these directors who always seem to know a little more than the average profane person, right? Mm -hmm. Probably helps to be a 33rd degree Mason. Well, I don't know if helps the right word. You're going to know more <laughs> things. Yeah, you're going to know more things. But for my money, um, you know, it's it's like being between a rock and a hard place in this world. You know, if you really want to know these things that matter, um, seemingly, unless you're lucky enough to find a good teacher who comes and finds you because you're ready or something, you would have to join a group like this. And yet these these groups seem to be very complicit in things that I would never participate in, things like false news cycles, false violence, um, false teachings, false religions, all these sorts of ideas. Um, and I wouldn't sell my soul, so to speak, as you know, just a metaphor uh, for knowledge. I just wouldn't do it because I feel in my in the way I live, that the price you will pay for having done wrong to that many human beings uh, trumps, to make another pun, uh, the information that you might receive. But anyhow. Yeah, I would ask here, too, at this point in time, I find it interesting that we've got this ancient alien hypothesis presented uh, as sort of like the first level of symbolism, the first order of symbolism in this film. It's pretty obvious that 
at, at first sight, this is the Anunnaki, the Zachary Sitchin, Sitchin um, mythology that so many people um, really get into. You've got the History Channel that, of course, was running the Ancient Aliens series, uh, the guy with the, the goofy hair that <laughs> was popular for a while. Um, I guess yeah, these, these nonsensical things I would point out. Yeah, so I guess just before we get too far along, I'm curious what are both of your guys' takes on um, the ancient alien hypothesis? Do you think there's any validity to the work of Sechin and others um, from earlier 20th century, or is this all more um, nonsense, do you think? For me, it, for me, it's nonsense. I read all the Sitchin stuff. That was way, way back for me when I first got a hold of it. And even at that tender age, um, I was beginning to question, really, so Mr. Sitchin deciphered a cuneiform tablet that he never identifies, apparently, um, so nobody can know what or where it was. There's supposedly only a handful, or I forget the number they give, of people who can actually decipher cuneiform. Um, when you begin to logically break it down, it's nonsense. Um, and not only that, if there was any truth to it, wouldn't you have like thousands of people learning to decipher cuneiform? Because this is the ultimate story, if there's any validity to it. Um, and then, of course, it's echoed up into things like Ancient Aliens on television, which shows you um, just how silly it is. Uh, I can't accept it. Uh, and while there's no definitive proving whether or not we're alone, you know, whether there are some other beings, there's really no evidence that holds up, as far as I can see, um, that, that lets us take that leap. And we need something to take that leap. I mean, let's face it. Roswell on the 33rd parallel told over and over and over and over is not going to get it, man, for a logical researcher. Um, the idea of the guy who coined the word UFOs in his airplane, that story told over. I mean, these stories are worn out, tired, and when you break them down, uh, they don't hold up. So... You know, are we alone? I can't answer that. But what I can say is we don't have anything foundational that we can stand on. And people like Sitchin, in my view, are just stumbling blocks. Well, Sitchin is supposed to be translating from ancient Sumerian works. And uh, the one thing supposedly that's said about him is that he is a high-ranking, was a high-ranking Freemason because he's deceased now. Uh, so that just should always be taken in into consideration. But there's another website I found. I remember when I was, looked at this stuff a few years ago that a guy has, he did similar work and he, he has a website called com. I think it was. So... Good. <laughs> you know, he's just saying, no, I mean, some of it was kind of what he was saying, but he got this, this, this wrong, like like real important points. So... Bear that in mind and do your own homework, you know? Let's break that down for a second. So we're told this other story about how did we decipher supposed hieroglyphics from Egypt. Well, they went at it and went at it and went at it. And lo and behold, one miraculous day, they found the Rosetta Stone, mm -hmm. which was in three languages, and they spoke one of the languages. Um, I think one of the languages is Greek, which is how they began to claim to do it. And, of course, this is all tied up with Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte. And then uh, what's the other language, James? Do you remember off the top of your head? Uh, uh, I can only think of Greek and the, the hieroglyphics. I'm not Right, I can't remember it. But now let's take a look at the supposed ancient Sumerian. It's cuneiform. It's basically little triangular reeds pressed into mud and then baked. So where's the Rosetta Stone? That's one thing I went at many times. How the hell did they take all these little reeds pushed into, you know, you, you think hieroglyphics are tough? At least there's pictures of things like bees and people and frogs and other things. This is literally a triangular shaped 
we are told, reed pushed into mud. So for them to decipher that, that was another stumbling block I hit. And I read all kinds of accounts, but at the end of the day, I, I couldn't accept it. Um, it's all nonsense to me. Yeah, one other interesting piece, too, when I was doing some research, you've got the uh, idea of Thomas Taylor, right? He's he's that famous uh, 18th or 19th century translator from, I believe, England. He uh, has a lot of works where he was translating this these old myths and so forth. And he's actually got a trust named after him. I think it's called the Prometheus Trust. So you have uh, a bottleneck there. And, and I'm not pretending to be a, uh, an expert on this guy whatsoever. But at first glance, you have an idea of somebody who's cherished, um, somebody who brought these myths to the English language. And, you know, again, it could very well be a bottleneck in the whole process. And that could be something that was completely misrepresented uh, from day one. And, you know, it's a guy that's work is continuing to be used today when people explore this type of knowledge. Well, there's there's even an encoding that goes on even in movies around the translation of how Egyptian hieroglyphics are translated, uh, if there's any value in that, um, which I'm sure there is. I just don't think they're nearly as old as we've been told. If I remember the guy's name, it's like Bunt or something like that. I'm probably mangling a little bit. But if you go look at the movie Stargate, uh, when James Spader comes in to do the translation, he makes the comment, oh, you're still using this guy's translations. Well, there are people out there that claim that this defamed man actually his translations were a lot closer. So you can see the construct. It's about like setting three maps next to each other with different projections. Which one is right? Is it the Mercator projection? Is it the, the Peters projection? Is it the Gall Peters projection? Is it one of the other 52 projections that we have? So now we get back to the same kind of construct where here's this guy who claims he did it better. A lot of the off off kilter researches um, you know hold on to this guy's translations as truer to real and we get to the same point in in logic where okay um, just because everyone says this other one is correct we have these other versions so which one is right and that's always going to be a problem mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well back to the movie here we are next shown cave paintings with these rough approximations of what the engineers look like painted on the walls in different locations said to be all around the earth with the alien pointing to a group of six stars uh, we're shown the isle of sky in the year 2089 and lots of phallus shaped rocks in scotland near the cave paintings where the things are found again a very similar draw made to 2001 a space odyssey the last point about before we hit into uh, the top of the hour here is that the star system... Now, this is not said in the movie, by the way. There's a lot of uh, extra media that goes along with the movie Prometheus that's interesting and fleshes it out. But the star system that they supposedly tra uh, travel to is the Zeta Reticuli star group. Okay, so this is taken straight out of um, the old, tired, gray alien stuff that the Tavistock Institute almost certainly um, is taking credit for the alien agenda thing. The claim was that, and I don't remember if it was Barney and Betty Hill or someone else, but I, and I don't think it was. I think it was someone else who was taken by Grays, and she remembered seeing a star map, and she wrote it down, and lo and behold, these astronomers matched the star map she drove to Zeta, or drew to Zeta Reticuli. So that's clearly where the Grays come from. So you can see this kind of reuse of this idea over and over, and for Zeta Reticuli even to be a feasible thing, we have to accept space in the way it's been described. As a matter of fact, for any of this to matter, we have to accept the orbital models, we have to expect the, accept the distances, we have to accept that the description of the suns are correct, that all stars are suns, that all suns have planets, all these things we have to accept, and, and for me it's a bridge too far. Um, 
but uh, in cases like this, I think it is far more helpful to be skeptical than to begin swallowing this stuff because anyone can look up. Um, Prometheus is claiming, you know, that the engineers came from Zeta Reticuli. Well, go look in any UFO forum. The grays come from Zeta Reticuli, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, again, it's, I think you got that first level of uh, symbolism, which I think the three of us are in agreement is nonsense, right? I don't think the three of us think that Ridley Scott is privy to some secret set of data or some knowledge base. And he chose to direct this movie called Prometheus. And in it, he's revealing the true nature and origin of humanity, right? I, I think that's safe to agree. And uh, I would even argue, like, straight from the get-go, when the location of these cave paintings, it's the Isle of Skye in Scotland. Um, if you do a little research on that, you'll see that's where they filmed that uh, 1970s Wicker Man. The, I don't know if you've seen that oh, one. Yeah. Yep. It's a great movie. You know, you talk about a lot of pagan symbolism, yep. sun worship, uh, vegetation, gods, so forth. Um, I've also sacrifice. found that. Yeah, sacrifice. Yep. Um, and then also in this area, you have uh, a lot of Scottish folklore related to the idea of giants, like a giant race and so forth. And there being some water and well in this area that was holy or sacred luck. So, you know, before everybody hep- taps on their extraterrestrial hypothesis had, I mean, again, just look at the... Uh, the imagery that's being used in this film, it's its very non-extraterrestrial. It's very old. It's very ancient. And it's very, very um, keyed in on, on sun worship and so forth. And we'll get into more of that as we move along. And, and I think that's an important point. And as we pull into the top of the hour here, um, I would make this point. I've demonstrated in past shows that all the supposed secret knowledge of the Masonic orders is simply encoding the sky. And why is the sky important? Because it's a clock. It's the only clock we have. It's the only way we can tell time here. Um, and so that hearkens to there must be some kind of ages. Why would it be so important to count every eclipse, every transit of Venus across the face of the sun, every solar eclipse, if you are not counting large portions of time? Which implies they must have some idea what previous ages were about, which implies they must expect that coming ages must have some predictability in some way, shape, or form that matters. Um, In other words, the idea of cyclical time. And in some ways, we can prove this out in a a no-nonsense way in our daily living. Today, I got up at 5.30 in the morning. Yesterday, I got up at 5.15. I don't typically eat breakfast, so those two days were the same. It was cyclical. When noon came around, I went up and I ate a sandwich. Um, and this is pretty cyclical in my life too. So even in my little miniature, you know, <laughs> tiny cyclical life, you can see how time is in a cyclical way for me. But then when I blow the cycle of time open, um, I could say, well, that in summer when it was hot in my little cyclical loop that I do, um, it provided for me to do other things. And then winter came along. And of course I was doing the, the Christmassy things and the other things where you can start to maybe understand that there is a reason to look deeply into the idea of cyclical time. But I would point out when they're talking about gods coming from Zeta Reticuli, for my money, they are probably just encoding a very mundane thing that has to do with the aspects of maybe how humans got here, how we live, how time affects us, what future times may have to do with us, this kind of thing. I don't think that the mystery hook that's made for your mind here is the important thing to pay attention to. I think the important thing to pay attention to is, is like supposedly what the Masons are doing, simply encoding the sky. It's about the sky. Um, anyhow, Jason, we're near the t- or maybe I'll start with James. James, we're near the top of the hour. Do you have anything to add to the first hour here? Uh, no, no, doing pretty good. I think we got through a lot of stuff. Um, yeah, great uh, chat so far. 
All right, James uh, or uh, Jason, go ahead and uh, and do your spiel for the second hour. Yeah, so so that's the whole beginning of the movie set up for us because next they we get into the actual they're traveling to this star group and seeing what they find there and it's going to be uh, first thing we're going to see is examples of transhumanism and we'll start breaking that down in the second hour. And that's an interesting thing, but of course that goes all the way back to Tavistock and you know the Macy's group with their cybernetics and transhumanism ideas and all this other stuff. But anyhow. Excuse me, that brings me to the top of the first hour uh, for Crow Triple Seven Radio, episode 50. The second hour or hour plus will be posted on Crow Triple Seven Radio.com for members, and I hope to see you all over there. Cheers. Mm-hmm.